Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Major Chris Parker, and this podcast topic is Multi-Service Doctrine in the Air, Land, Sea Application Center. With me today is Colonel Ian Bennett and Colonel Aaron Clark. Director and Deputy Director of the Air, Land, Sea Application Center, otherwise known as ALSA, and Mr. Rich Creed, Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. So today we're discussing some of the organizations and processes behind the development of multi-service doctrine. Since the Army rarely, if ever, operates by itself, we rely on joint and multi-service doctrine as the common language used to guide most operations. So, Mr. Creed, if you could, uh, would you start us off with an explanation of multi-service doctrine and how it differs from joint and service-specific doctrine? Yeah, sure, Chris. So, kind of just go in order here. So, joint doctrine, and this comes from the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff instruction, right? So, all of these things are based on on formal guidance. Uh, But joint doctrine is defined as the fundamental principles that guide the employment of U.S. military forces in coordinated action towards a common objective And it may include terms, tactics, techniques, and procedures. So the Joint Staff J7 uh, is responsible for the development of uh, all joint doctrine, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, Office approves uh, each of those publications. Joint doctrine largely covers uh, strategic and operational levels of war, uh, not tactical, uh, specific tactical issues. And that's become more so over the last few years based on guidance um, from Rear Admiral Scott when he was the J-7 uh, about three years ago. Um, and it, so it, it provides the overarching context for multi-service doctrine as well, right? So we think of that as that higher strategic operational umbrella, and then the multi-service doctrine uh, falls underneath that. So multi-service doctrine is a publication that contains principles, terms, tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, used and approved by the forces of two or more services. And not all the services, but two or more services to perform a common military function consistent with approved joint doctrine. So that consistent with approved joint doctrine means, in other words, it's got to be congruent with it. It can't be contrary to it. It adds to it. Um, so it's treated as service doctrine and assigned a service doctrine publication number. So um, this multi-service publication will have one designation as an Army pub, another as a Marine Corps pub, and another as an Air Force pub or Navy pub. Um, service agreement, in other words, the entire service agreement is not required uh, because it's approved by a Joint Action Steering Committee, or a JASC, uh, signed by the service doctrine chiefs, uh, usually one-star uh, general officers uh, or, or admirals from each of the services. And, and it focuses on tactical-level solutions. And so each of us uh, members of the JASC represent their services, and each of the services have, has their own doctrine. And service doctrine is those publications approved by a single service for use within that service. And it's written or prepared in the Army by our centers of excellence or, or a proponent. And, and then each of the services has proponents for their doctrinal publications as well. In our case, ours are approved uh, through the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate up through the Combined Arms Center here uh, at Fort Leavenworth. Um, they're ultimately approved and, and made official service doctrine uh, from the Office of the Secretary of the Army. So 
thanks for the once over the world, sir. I think now it's best if we bring in Colonel Bennett and maybe get a better understanding of, uh, of ALSA. So, sir, can you give us some background on your organization, its, its mission, and what gap it, it specifically fills for the doctrine community? So ALSA stands for the Airline Sea Application Center, as you pointed out, and uh, we are located at Langley Air Force Base. So we started off as a multi-service organization focused on synchronizing the joint warfighter to provide interoperability solutions for the tactical warfighter. Mm -hmm. uh, we really look at the near term, so the tactical solutions, uh, looking at multi-services, uh, Mr. Cree pointed out, and really focus on the interoperability issues or interoperability solutions. Start off in 1973 as a concept between the Air Force and the Army, uh, following lessons learned from Vietnam. So really looking at how we can better integrate the air and land components. Mm -hmm. uh, stood up in 1975, we expanded 1970, uh, 1992 after the Desert War when the Marines and the Navy came aboard, and then we became ELSA. Mm -hmm. uh, 1998, uh, we became JDL qualified or JDL, a JDL billeted uh, organization. Really, the core construct of why we exist hasn't changed remarkably over time. Mm -hmm. uh, we still are there for solving uh, problems at the tactical level. We're not a service-specific organization. We're comprised of all four services. Uh, we work with the four service direct, uh, directorates. Uh, they are the ones who provide us our task and purpose, basically our, our guidance. And then they form the Joint Action Steering Committee, or otherwise known as JAST, we meet twice a year. And they provide the left and right limits for what we do. Mm -hmm. um, we produce multi-service tactics, techniques, and procedures. We are not the exclusive owner of those. Anybody can do those, but this is kind of our our bread and butter, and then we also do studies as well as the Airline Sea Bulletin, which is produced twice a year. Uh, and then we engage through our professional networking and how we get our expertise is through face-to-face uh, -face meetings, networking, collaborative tools, especially leveraged over last year with COVID, mm -hmm. expanding our technological outreach or technology to be able to increase our outreach and do joint working groups at a virtual uh, world. And then uh, now we're really focused on expanding our digital outreach uh, through social media construct, redesigned website, as well as uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yes, sir. So you guys have, have your hands out there and everybody trying to, trying to grab as much information and subject matter expertise as possible. We do. And as an organization, we're only 22 people deep. Okay. Uh, and so the reliance is on the force, on the field of force, to be able to provide the subject matter expertise. We don't write the words, it's done by the subject matter expertise. We more or less corral the cats, make sure that everybody comes up with viable solutions. We make it nice and neat, polish it up, and then produce it. But really, it's the tactical warfighter that does the majority of the work. Gotcha. Well, speaking of a, a being a fairly small um, organization, I kind of want to bring in Colonel Clark, if you could, sir. Could you describe how also staffed? And um, I'm curious, who do you guys report to? Who's your, who's your higher headquarters out there? Yeah, so, well, I mean, as uh, Colonel Bennett brought up, I mean, it started off with the, as an Army and Air Force uh, organization, and, uh, and it's kind of been that way. It hasn't changed a whole lot, really, with as far as reporting. So we're all ADCON, if you will, back to our services. Okay. But we exist as a centralized organization at Langley. So uh, in that, we have eight Air Force uh, JDAL billets. We have seven Army JDAL billets, and then one, Arm, one Navy and one Marine Corps billet. So... All uh, JDAL qualified, and then we have uh, an enlisted uh, com NCO and uh, and uh, five civilians, and that's the the bulk of our stuff. But 
uh, all split to the winds, to, so to speak. Every service donates a little bit to our effort so that we can make things happen. And, uh, and so far, it's been working. Um, but uh, So far, so good? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's got to be cooperative, right? So the service is going to cooperate. So, I mean, we view, like here at CAD, when you, when you all are working for subject matter experts and you're not getting an answer from a Fort Sill or a Fort Huachuca or wherever, you know, we make phone calls and say, hey, you know, this isn't a joke. This is a priority for the Army because once the JAS says something's a priority, then it's a priority for all the services or it should be. And you just have to remind people. And I mean, historically, if you look at the stuff that we've done at House, I mean, it's to your point, it's been at some of the cutting edge things that's been happening on the battlefield. If you go back and look at the very beginning stuff uh, to the first bulletins we did in 1978 and whatever, it's, it's talking about air land battle. It's the tra it's a TRADOC air uh, tactical air command at that point in time mm -hmm. uh, interaction to figure out how air land battle was going to work in the fold of gap and then you go in further uh, and you start with uh, 2001 and you and you start seeing all the pubs come out for convoy operations for uh, various things that people go hey we need to share the expertise among the force mm -hmm. now the one thing I would say though from our we often people say oh we do tactics and we do do tactics absolutely but if you read some of the manuals. What I think is interesting is it actually breaches into the, into the uh, kind of uh, bottom edge of operational stuff too. So, because staff officers are using it as well, it's not just happening. Uh, it's you know you got everybody from the E4 mm -hmm. uh, sitting in uh, their vehicle in the in the desert uh, reading the manual to the captain or major uh, setting in his his or her staff position trying to figure out how soft and conventional forces are organized to to be working in the in the environment that they have. So. We've, we've kind of expanded quite a bit over the years. Well, and sir, on that note, I wanted to, to ask you a bit, since, um, since you mentioned that, that you guys do tactics, but you also do touch on operations, the also manuals that I've referenced in the past, they seem quite technical. Um, you know, and I, I'm thinking of, I, I referenced the uh, kill box techniques, I think, for example, was one that I spent some time in. Is that normal for most of your manuals? Are they kind of technical, or is it, or is that just a, the one I grabbed off the shelf that day? It depends. So, J-Fire Handbook, as an artilleryman, I grew up with J-Fire Handbook. Uh, it's gone through several evolutions. There are some very technical aspects of it, but part of that is really the technical aspects help uh, baseline the services. So, you know, I, as a working as an artilleryman, understand what the Air Force is bringing on an aircraft, what the capabilities for ammunition is. And that is helpful for me because I need to calculate what the collateral damage potentially may be and what my standoff has to be. Um, so there are some benefits for having very technical stuff in it. Others like the uh, tactical convoy operation is a little bit more detailed, but this is based off the experiences for people from, from people and written for people who actually run convoys. But it's not as technical because I don't care what kind of vehicle you have. I just care that that you're able to function. Whether you know good ideas from the services saying, "Hey, here's here's some best practices for running convoys in a in a ground." Less technical, but more focused on the tactical level. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we start talking about airspace control, it's that's a lot more in the still can be technical. It can but be I mean, we also have manual. We're about to publish a new advising manual, for example. Mm -hmm. If you go through that, it's uh, there's nothing very technical in it. If you look through the SIF soft manual, conventional force soft interaction, it's it's uh, command relationships mostly, and mm -hmm. and kind of taking the joint pubs, the parenting joint pubs and service pubs, and and making sure everybody just understands what they're dealing with at the at the tactical and operational level. Yes, sir. 
But you have process stuff too, which is I think another huge, big value from those those uh, publications in that not all the services have all the same processes. So if there's a process for bringing a different services capability to bear, having a one-stop uh, publication that that E4 can use when he's talking on the radio and that Humvee or at an OP somewhere, you know, that, I think that's hugely important, you know, from a process standpoint. Yeah, so how do I do this? You know, who do I talk to? And like the advising one would have been great in 2008 when I was an advisor on a MIT team. Had I had that or had we had access to that, it would have, would have maybe solved a few problems or at least given us some ideas of what to expect. Uh, the J-Fire Handbook, as I talked about earlier, is that's been around long before I showed up to the force. But, uh, but your processes, it really depends on the subject and mm -hmm. depends on the audience and depends on who's going to be the executor for it. Uh, but it, it does provide a baseline so all services can kind of get an idea for what they are going to execute or more importantly give them exposure for what another service is about or what another service is able to do mm -hmm. and so it gives them a point of point of departure i would encourage people to to go and either go to our website or or look in one of the bulletins that are out there and all the pubs are listed in the back but uh it's a it's kind of surprising how often we hear from people that uh, i did i had no idea there was a manual out there that there's a book out there about this i i'd been doing this for four or five years and nobody had ever showed me this well yeah we put a lot of work in this in fact most of our pubs you know you're getting the leading experts in the services that are jumping forward to help write those it's not like as colonel bennett said it's not us out there writing them it's us getting the experts together you get the dive manual together you got the navy you got the navy dive center you got the army dive school the air force dive school they're all getting together and and talking to operate operational units to figure out how to make that manual right mm -hmm. so it's you know it's it's the best and brightest that we have in those areas those functional areas coming up with that information and then when you have the best and brightest you also get the the all articles that we were that we referenced so we recently last few months what we've been asking our action officers to go do is go back and reference all the way back to 1975 pull out the bulletins and figure out hey what's what may be relevant still today yeah. so yeah. some things have changed some things have not changed uh, and and one of the one of the awesome parts about the articles that we write is we have captains, majors, lieutenant colonels writing these. They've looked at a problem. They have questions, so they write about a process. And really, the idea is to elicit some sort of reaction to be able to continue the dialogue. Uh, we get a lot of articles from the Air Force, a significant number from the Army. Um, we enjoy reading the articles, and then we enjoy going back in the archives and saying, wow, um, we thought we had this figured out, but apparently we don't. And right. so it shows you how often we return through the same problems over and over again in the military, oh, yeah. uh, just in my career. But even if you go back to the 45-year career of, of the ALSA organization or, or lifespan, it's just one the same problem we're churning through again and again and again to some extent with new with new variables perhaps but uh, still doing it uh, to the publication so the album that we've traditionally called that we, we're changing that name here in the next couple of months to Battle Space Journal and and uh, we've come out it's 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 to um, as we went back and looked at the the historical stuff the alb was literally a bulletin when it first came out it was there written on a typewriter and saying hey just so you know the army's going to talk about this next week at uh, uh, you know this fort and the Air Force is going to do this at this base and uh, and so we're actually going that'll be in the journal it'll be in the back so you still have that information that's helpful but uh, we're trying to be more uh, representative of the authors that we get which is a much more academic level representation of tactical level problems 
ideally tactical level problems. Sometimes we'll go bigger than that if we think the topic fits in the realm of what we, we need to discuss, but uh, we'll be coming out with our first volume of that soon. Um, and we put out articles every month now on, online, uh, both, both ones from the archives and ones from current, so people can see the two. Yeah, well, just throw one other thing out. You know, there's an appetite in the services for these things, as you all pointed out, some of the high volume ones, but the, the, the publications that are heavily in demand, I guess is how I would phrase it, within our U.S. Joint Force also tend to be the same ones that are heavily in demand with our multinational allies and partners during operations. And at some point later on, maybe we talk about uh, some of the challenges dealing with that. We actually, uh, I don't have a whole lot of information on it personally because we have a, a foreign disclosure guy that's taking care of that, but yeah. a number of foreign entities have asked, allies of ours have asked for public copies of our publications, yeah. and we, we cycle those through and get get what we can out to them so that they can use them as well for the same reason. I mean, how many operations have we been joined on almost every, ever combined on, excuse me, almost every one that I could think of, yeah. so. Yeah, and our allies and partners contribute. So we, the FDO process works very well. It allows us to get the information relatively quickly out to uh, the customer. And then as requests come in, we're able to adjudicate and then we're able to get that, that publication out. And then as the, as the uh, audience grows, then we're able to react to that. But so again, it, that the FDO process is not just also that's reaching out to the services to make sure the services have buy-in to what we're about to produce on an international scale uh, to our allies and partners. And, and we have had great success. Um, and it's, it's really a benefit to our ability to get inputs from the, from the field and saying, okay, this is, this is what's required. And then we were able to turn very quickly and say, okay, this is, this is kind of a priority. Can we publish and can we send this out? Um, well, in that academic vein, I, you mentioned earlier the ALSA studies. Um, and I wanted to start there. Um, can you give us some background, sir, on the ALSA studies, what, what those are, how they work? With, I think the study would, okay. In, in all seriousness, the study is a great way for us to look at a problem and mm -hmm. identify what the, what, where there may be an issue. So an individual, say for instance, has a question about X, Y, Z, and they think it's important enough that they, they think there may be grounds for publication and then TTP. Uh, they will contact us or they'll go through the services who will get hold of us. Uh, the JASC will say, yes, this is worthy of a study. Mm -hmm. And so it really is a research paper uh, to try to define and clarify what the problem is that we're trying to solve and then a potential solution. That solution may uh, include a new MTTP or may not, but it, once we con conclude with a research portion, then we return it to the JAS. The JAS will take a vote on it, and if they concur, then we write an MTTP. If they don't concur, then we do not write the MTTP. Gotcha. Now, are these are these studies, sir, are they published anywhere? I mean, I know we've talked about going back to the archives for things. Are, are these collected and, and published at all? No. it's These are kept for our purposes to inform the JASC members as to whether there's viable means for uh, for a process or a product, and this isn't. It, this is more of a uh, the, an internal mechanism. An internal so mechanism, to, exactly. I so, mean, it's the first step if you want to get something published. If you think there's an idea to be had, it's the first step you're going to have to go through. Start with the study. And and um, you know what those are today. I don't know, but I'm sure out there in the forest there's some people 
that are working together and thinking, man, it'd be great if we wrote this all down someplace. We'll mm -hmm. bring that up to us. We'll put somebody on it. We'll get somebody out there to study it and, uh, and come back with the recommendation for the JAS to go move, move ahead or to not move ahead or to use some other, other avenue to take care of it. As, as Colonel Bennett said, we don't publish every MTTP in the military, right? So mm -hmm. we get people every now and then that call us and say, hey, you guys are MTTP center. We want to give you ours. It's like, well, that's, we don't do every one of them. We do certain ones uh, that the doctrine centers want us to work on. And so there are other entities within the military that work an agreement out between the services that they're working with, and they write MTTPs mm -hmm. as well. So, uh, but we work on, I think, most of the, if it's a kinetic bring to bring the fight to the battlefield type thing then it's probably probably held with us i would guess you also do studies and maybe i'm using the wrong word but you, you kind of do a study process to determine whether hey do we need to revise a book yeah. uh, or you know because it's resource intensive right i mean there's only 22 people um so it's a, it requires a lot of effort so before we just say well it's three years so it's time to update it let's do a study to make sure whether we need to or whether we need to keep a book maybe correct and we go back to the services and pull them and they yeah. they can say yes retain it or no it's time to rescind this because we have the information in other other venues but the study is a great opportunity for us to explore new ideas mm -hmm. and then uh, we go off and interview individuals we go off and observe exercises uh, so it's great for us internally, but no, it's not. To go back to the question, do we share? No. Uh, we share with the, with the people who ask for the study, and we share with the JAS members, but it's not for public consumption. Now, do we, is there a process or a, a criteria for deciding who, um, who's going to write an MTTP, or if it's, if it's going to be the services? Because I know we own a couple here, sir, the environmental pubs, um, urban, jungle, desert. Uh, so is there any sort of criteria established, or is it just kind of the service is figured out? Um, you mean whether it's an also pub Whether it's an also pub versus a service joint, you know, a multi-service pub? Well, the first point is I was lucky, I think, coming into this, that these, these organizations had been around long enough that they'd kind of arbitrated a lot of that in, in the past. Um, I think the good um, rule that we refer to is if it's really about two services, and, and from the Army perspective, it's for the most part, our multi-service publications have to do with operations on the ground. All right, so they, they, may, they will, of course, always be part of joint operations, but the, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that we're talking about, or that uh, the tactics and techniques and procedures that are unique to a specific in, uh, environment would be an environment pertaining to operations on the ground. Mm -hmm. So. Most of our multi-service publications are with the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, there's the two land forces, right? And so we talk, like you said, jungle operations, desert operations. We're doing a new one on Arctic uh, and extreme cold weather. We already had one on cold weather and mountain. Um, and those type of publications also become the basis for multinational publications with NATO in many cases. Um, because we've already done the work and then you just have to collaborate a little bit more with the allies. Um, so for the most part, I think we have a couple multi-service pubs with the Air Force. In fact, I know we do, uh, Jagic, for example. But um, the, the majority of ours that we're responsible for in CAD are, are with the Marine Corps. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, it, it, the, the majority of the MTTPs we do, I mean, not a huge majority, but more of them are, the Air Force relies on them more than the Army does. But if you look at the 
perspective, I mean, if we're doing something with the air, we're dealing with the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Air Force. Right. And so if it's combat aircraft, and so you're not, it's not just a two service right. uh, agreement. Otherwise, it probably would be done differently, like you say. Yeah. So to get back to the process, I guess, of how we create these FTTPs, you start with a study, and let's say the study identifies, yes, this is a legitimate problem, and, and we are the organization to solve it. I, what comes next? I, I, I've been pinged before on emails about working groups. Um, sir, can you give us some background on the working group process and, and how that comes together, what that looks like? Sure. So once we finish the study or we determine that it's time to upgrade a MTTB, modernize it, um, mm-hmm. or just retain it, uh, we will go back to the services and pull them. The entire process is about a 15 months. It's segmented out into specific categories to make sure that one, once a, this is the right thing to do, we need to upgrade it. All right, let's do the research. Okay, then we put it out for uh, review, make sure the services are copacetic with uh, mm-hmm. upgrading it. And then we'll do a series of joint working groups. The average number is about three. Uh, and that's an opportunity. Traditionally, we've had subject matter experts come to Langley, uh, sit down and, and uh, go through the book, make sure that we are able to revise the process. COVID has a, has afforded us the ability to leverage technology, so we don't have to have people come to mm-hmm. uh, Langley. We're able to engage the subject matter experts externally, uh, which is great. It allows us a lot of freedom and frees up people from having to travel mm-hmm. and spend a week or two weeks down Langley. Uh, and then once that's completed and we go through the revision process, we have a chance to review the book, then it gets sent out for worldwide review. Uh, we get the final edits, then we send it out for the approval package to the JASC members. And then once that's completed, then the book comes back to us prepared, final preparations for publication. Gotcha. So sir, how big is the MTTP library currently? And, and what are some of the uh, more, I know we mentioned a couple already, but some of the better known publications that you guys own? I don't think there's a better publication than JFire personally. <laughs> no, so we have 32 books in our library. Uh, since our inception, we've written over 300, around 300 books. Uh, and it really comes down to, um, it ebbs and flows probably anywhere from 29 to 33, okay. depending on depending on what we're doing at the time. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, ACC is a good one, air control communication. I was, the Air Force. The Air Force teaches me a lot too, so I, I spend a lot of time learning. Uh, JFIRE Handbook, TCO advising, uh, DISCA, uh, mm-hmm. and then what's it, so DISCA is is an interesting organization since it deals with civil support, which mm-hmm. is not unique. And we mentioned diving, which is a great one. Coast Guard participates in that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have experts from other services outside of the pure military paradigm. Um, and those those are off the top of my head. Uh, brevity uh, for the pilot's perspective. Personnel recovery. It's a big one. Survivability. Scar. Scar. Scar, yeah. As our British friends were asking about Scar for a long time, because that's a big deal with... Uh, for our listeners, sir, what is Scar? Strike, coordination, and reconnaissance. Yeah. We were just looking at this pub the other day, so but all that's in my head is Scar. You yeah. can say that, so... Yeah, it's easy to get, I mean, it's wicked easy to get involved with the acronyms. And so mm-hmm. when somebody says, hey, spell out ACC, it takes a minute. <laughs> And if, if ACC is not native to your service, mm-hmm. uh, Air Force knows exactly what it is. But for the Army, it takes a minute. Uh, because but then we have airspace control, which is AC, so you got that in there too. So. Uh, but that's another kind of big one. I mean, it, and it impacts, believe it or not, both 
ground and air, obviously. I mean, an artillery officer is very concerned about airspace control, not as much as the pilot in the air, but uh, definitely concerned. And uh, A large part of these manuals must be just getting the language right so that we're understanding each other across services. And that's, a, I mean, that's critical here. And so when we have the subject matter, when we have the joint working groups, the subject mm -hmm. matter experts come in, we have the services represented at the time and a lot of, a lot of time and make sure that the action officer's job is to make sure that we level uh, level the bubbles and get uh, the right verbiage so somebody from the Air Force and the Army, the Navy, the Marines are able to communicate clearly and concisely what they're trying to say. Yes, sir. And if it passes, if Scrap, uh, Aaron and I are able to read through it successfully, that means that they met the mark because we're probably the, we're, we're the long pole of the tent. <laughs> well, so, you are. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, the, so it, it just comes, so... You know, back in my early flying days career, we just called it standards, right? We would, we would develop standards for the unit. The unit, other units would have the same standards that flew the same plane. And if you could go fly with somebody in another unit and you knew exactly what they were going to do because you were speaking with the same language. And that's really all we're doing, except we're doing a multi-service, you know, and, and, a, and it's a bigger problem, right? Because all the services have a little different culture, a little different understanding of how things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it, it ends up working. I think there's benefits to it, too, because... Uh, a Navy flyer or something may come in and say, hey, I think we ought to do this, and here's a name for it, and here's what it means, and this is what we're doing in the Navy. And everybody goes, wow, that's great. I hadn't thought of that. And then all of a sudden, it's added to the pub. The brevity term's added. The understanding of it's added. And, and everybody in the Joint Force is, is working on that then. you know. Um, so it's a great way to kind of get our service peculiarities pushed out there for the whole uh, DOD. Like, I see the interoperability problem becoming the key problem between the service. The key way to actually be successful in the battlefield is to solve the interoperability problem. Right. And so and I think it's a bigger bigger issue than what the services have probably given it credit for and that if we're going to win in the future, it's, I mean, we have the best army in the, air, in, the, in the world. We have the best air force in the world. We have the best, but that the, the only way to get better at this point is to learn to work together better, you know? Right. And um, we, we, we make things harder and I know they do it because you got to have a message, right? So our message is we have to do things better, so we're going to have a new. But we had a conversation, so, and, and I apologize to Ian if you heard this before. When you say joint all domain operations, all you're saying is joint joint operations. Yeah. All right, because when you take the four services and then add U.S. Cybercom to it, which is really a service in and of itself, the way it operates, um, you're, it's already joint. That's exactly all domain uh, operations are joint operations. That's what makes the U.S. Joint Force so potent is that we do it better than everybody else and we do it at scale and scope. But we all know that, you know, it, we could do it a lot better. And we've gotten so much better in certain things over the last 20 years, but other skills have, have eroded because we haven't practiced them. Well, a lot of times our success is built off what? The human being, right? I mean, we yeah. succeed because the troops on the ground figure workarounds for the stuff we've screwed up that we haven't figured out how to agree upon. And so they get it figured out. And, uh, and we've all been there. Yeah. And we've all, I don't know, let's just make it happen. We'll figure it out. And we go forward. And luckily, we train people well enough they can do that. But I think as we get into this kind of uh, higher-paced, high-end, near-peer competition, uh, A2AD threats, all this stuff, you're not going to have, you don't have time. So I was in ALO in 2002 to 2004 with the 4ID uh, 2nd Brigade, and uh, you know they were the digital division, right? Right. And uh, I rolled in there, and I'm like, oh, 
Army's all digital. Like, no, no, just us. And then, and then uh, I'm like, oh, so we can see everybody? They're like, yeah, we can see everybody. Then I realized, yeah, everybody except all the Air Force guys who are in our vehicles with no EPLARs, with no Blue Force tractor, with no, and, and our vehicles didn't look the same inside. Because why? Because our vehicles were paid for by the Air Force, the Army's, and two acquisition programs did it. And then when we had planes come in, I'm like, well, we can't download like the fighter data link stuff the Air Force has. No, it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't work with what we put into the talk here. Okay. And then the guard comes. And I'm like, well, what about the guard stuff? Yeah, it can go into the talk, but the 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 Air Guard and the Air Force couldn't talk to each other with data link because they had bought different systems. And, and and then and then I get here and you, what? Twenty years later, almost USMTF 2004. We're not talking to each other. It happened for ten years. Oh, great. Yeah, we but, really figured this out. And even worse, we haven't talked about the fact that we haven't talked to be able to exactly. talk to each other for 10 years, well, which is even scarier. The, the people, I mean, people at the you know, we have. No, 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 I know. But it's, we start looking at the large programs. The goes, services. Right, services. No. It is not, you know, it, it becomes problematic because you're like, how do I, so as a HIMARS battalion commander, you know, you've, you're sitting in the, um, with the, in the ACE, listening to the Air Force chatter, but you're tracking about six different chat messages. You think you know the call sign that's going to target your, call on your target. It just becomes very complicated. You're like, wow, this is an airplane's moving at 600 miles an hour. Like, well, 2001, working with the, with, I was an Apache squad working with the Apaches. They would do overwater stuff. Yeah, yeah. So they they'd have to work with the with the Navy. The Navy would vector us in them targets, and you're just. It, be, it was a lot of lead time to get to the point where you could actually go ship to aircraft yeah. and execute. So we were talking earlier, um, we are talking about like almost real-time updates. 2003, when we were getting ready to go to Iraq, 3ID was already in, in Baghdad as we are getting ready to fly home. We are getting real-time reports from the field, emails from uh, you know, company commanders, battery, battalion commanders saying, hey, uh, since you guys are coming in after us, here's here's some items to pack. Um, and oh, by the way, the AK-47, great weapon. Make sure you, you know, the grease guns that you have in the M1s, get rid of them. Take the AK-47, you know, all these great, a bug repellent, make sure you bring up extra insect repellent, get some, you know, all these, but it was all real time. So it was like, it was like a MTTP real time updates. And, you know, we're, we're packing stuff in our tap boxes and trying to say, okay, what else can we pack in it's a it's an interesting problem set. So. so we talked about some of the uh, more popular pubs. How about some of the pubs that you're currently working on right now, sir? Are there any um, any any hot books out there that you guys are revising or updating that our listeners might be interested in? Scar. <laughs> <laughs> the advising pub is getting worked on right now, like I said. Yeah. So I mean, I just looked at it the other day. It'll go out for worldwide review here. I think in a couple of weeks uh, to various doctrine centers and commands to look at, and then. Uh, I would assume uh, we're looking at publishing in probably the next six to eight months. Yep, TCO just got published. Uh, we have AMD. And what is that, Airbus. sir, for our, for our listeners, TCO? Convoy operations. Yeah, tactical, tactical convoy, convoy operations. operations. I was going to give him a chance. Yeah, I, I had it in, the, <laughs> in the, the back of my brain housing group, but I was about to say it, and then as soon as you said, what is it? Uh, uh, air, air missile defense, AMD. Um, diving is going is ongoing currently they just finished up their last working group um amd just finished up their second working group they've got another one coming up i believe um 
and you know, oh, I'm sorry, Go ahead. but I mean, to the to the website, and I keep pushing back to the to the website to the bulletin. I mean, there's information in there how to get on these teams if you really if you happen to be the uh, an expert in the area or think you are an expert in the area, whatever. But if, if you want to be involved in these working groups, uh, there's information when these working groups are happening. There's information about how to get hold of, of people uh, and get involved with these efforts if you want to. So. Well, we, uh, we found that the people that are most passionate about a topic are the people whose livelihood is directly affected about getting it right. right. And so they're the best co-authors on anything because, one, they're subject matter experts, but it's, it's more important than that to be able to express ideas in writing that you can be understood across four services um, requires a certain level of passion, I think, to get a, a good product. Mm -hmm. To to the point, like, hey, how can we find out about this and mm -hmm. the website? We spent a considerable amount of time uh, hard work from uh, the team to be able to put together. We revamped the website, and within the website, it talks about it lays out all the MTTPs that we have in our our uh, our library. I did the count, thirty-two, mm -hmm. so that is accurate. Uh, but we also have the links to our publication. We have links to uh, the next joint working groups that are going to occur. Uh, so it's a great resource. And then if if you have the capability to access them, uh, you can download the, uh, the the various MTTPs. And we're looking to, I mean, use that as, I mean, we've said this a few times. So when I first got here, what do we do? We write MTTPs. Well, I would argue that we do more than that. We do interoperability, so between the services. And so part of that website is is now an ongoing effort is to kind of make it more useful for interoperability. I mean, that's why the Battlespace Journal is there. That's why uh, we have information in there. The, there'll be more and more information in there about things that are happening perhaps at the Army Doctrine Center that maybe somebody in the Marine Corps or in the Air Force actually wants to tie in on because it's all digital and they can listen to it nowadays and do this sort of thing. So uh, our objective here is to kind of be that that group that starts making the services less seam less seams between the services mm -hmm. and we start seeing uh, what each other are doing and, and understanding it yeah Aaron and I had a conversation a few minutes ago before coming on the podcast and like his point about we the purpose of our existence is not MTTP but really it comes down to why we exist what problems are we trying to solve mm -hmm. and that's the interoperability MTTPs are a mechanism are mechanisms kept to that point uh, but the the discussion at with Aaron and I is, is really um, very good in terms of trying to say, okay, we get it, you're here to write a book or you're here to do MTTPs, but what we're really trying to do is enable people to talk mm -hmm. and understand each other and then work together in combat. Well, interoperability is an inside-out thing. If you're going to get it right, it's got to be inside out. So it's got to be within your own service first. We all have challenges within our services about being interoperable, whether it's different aircraft types or with us in, in the Army, it's different radio sets and, and all those kinds of things. It's, I mean, you don't think of that as a, as a challenge, but it is. And from where we sit, um, we've got some responsibilities in CAD in terms of, of driving interoperability um, uh, amongst both NATO and uh, the Five Eyes countries, English-speaking armies, um, to make sure that we have these human and, and procedural, uh, as well as technical, interoperability piece. So that when you open that up, if you're not interoperable within your own service, you're going to have a hard time being interoperable with the other services. And then if you're not interoperable amongst the U.S. Joint Force, 
than being interoperable with your your allies and partners some who are part of coalitions we have standard uh, standards that we've all agreed to uh, follow and then it gets even more complicated when you get to the bilateral relationships with folks that aren't part of, of coalitions so I mean I think these MTTPs that also puts out I've got to be the basis for, off the top of my head, three or four NATO publications, almost word for word, mm -hmm. as an example. And within also itself, we talked about interoperability, but it's a great opportunity for the for the action officers to be able to be exposed to different aspects. So, a Marine, a Navy officer, um, Air Force, Army, when they go on trips, they go to bases. We try to mix the teams up so everybody gets a little bit of ex different exposure to how the services work. It gives them an appreciation for how the other side lives. Uh, and then we have some great debates internally uh, about how we go about doing things or if we have questions. I mean, we, we ask the same questions that the uh, those outside the organization are asking, but we have an opportunity to talk internally. So that's, that's one of the benefits for you know, when we talk about looking internally, we do the same thing. That's actually, and I thought about mentioning earlier, kind of a key line of effort for how we get the word out is our AOs go around to a lot of things and they're out to, they're out at exercises, they're out at uh, dealing with lessons learned that are happening uh, for various exercises or, or futures games or whatever is happening out there. And and when we send them, they don't just, ah, we're going to go talk to the cat and they're done, they go back to their hotel room. They end up bringing us a schedule that's like, well, we're going to talk to them, then we got, there's an Air Force agency over here we're going to go to. Then. So whoever we sent out, they've went to four or five different agencies, they've seen uh, people all throughout from the tactical level to the operational level doing various things they're, they're out there trying to get information and and then they, they they're making networking connections and so they've we've actually been very successful in many times where one service has a problem they're trying to fix and we're like well just talk to this guy he's he's over in this other service he's probably got the answer you're looking for and we put the two people together and that solves their problem uh, so we spend a lot of effort trying to do that it's that, that human piece yeah, and when we finish up with the trips, we do a trip report. We send out the, to our counterparts in the services. Mm -hmm. So the services get the feedback from, hey, our observations, um, who, we, who we contacted, who we talked to. And again, that goes back to informing. informing. Yes, sir. And to speak of, of, the, <clears throat> of your team, sir, these are all joint billets. So I, uh, I mean, uh, for our listeners may not be aware, because you guys are a small organization, this is a kind of an opportunity as well to not only learn the services, but to become joint qualified. Am I correct there? Everybody goes to JP Me Too when they show up at the, at the job. We're, we're there at Langley, so we're a 30, 40-minute drive from the Joint Forces Staff College. So they, send, they go down there for their two and a half months of JP Me Too and then uh, spend their three years on staff with us, two to three years on staff with us doing the AO business. So, yep, they leave joint qualified. And, uh, and I think they get a unique joint perspective. I mean, uh, when I first got there, you know, I was kind of wonder, kind of trying to figure it out. I mean, I did a joint staff job at a at a staff, a formal mm -hmm. staff someplace, and so I'm like, well, they're missing out on that. Mm -hmm. But what they're getting that I didn't get is is real work, real real human communication with people at the level that are knocking out the operations in there. And I think that you, you're making a well-rounded officer that way uh, because they're they're getting to see how it's really done as opposed to just you know, making sure the operations center has the right stuff on the screen and, and that we've passed the paperwork appropriately. Maybe I dog staff jobs too much, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think our guys do very well with that. I, and I think they enjoy it. You know, uh, I know they enjoy it because they tell us they do, so. 
it's not because we tell them to tell us. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It is a unique organization, and it's, it is very, very tight-knit group. Um, so the, the experiences that people walk away from, and, and, you know, to be honest, I have, until maybe five years ago, I did not know what also was mm -hmm. until I was looking for a job after battalion command, and this was one of the options. And fortunately, I wasn't able to take it at the time, uh, but the opportunity presented it at this stage of my career, so it was a, it was a great opportunity to reattack and join a great organization. And come away learning a lot about doctrine, so. Yes. Another benefit. <laughs> well, gentlemen, on that note, is there, uh, is there anything I missed? No, I mean, uh, I, I guess, you know, I just think that I'd thank you guys for doing a program like this. Uh, uh, in all honesty, and I know that I say this because I know it's common among many senior officers in the military, uh, this assignment was my first time dealing with doctrine in my entire time in the Air Force. And, and uh, you know, I've been dealing with, you know, A3 stuff and G3, whatever, mm -hmm. all that kind of things most of my career. Uh, I have not been busy with doctrine. And uh, to come here, to Ian's point, I didn't know what else it was until I got the assignment. So, uh, And then you get here, and the only way we're going to get it out and make sure people understand and know that the publications that we publish, we actually publish, and they're useful is to talk about it and to get the information out. So appreciate your guys' efforts. Chris, you and uh, Mr. Creed have done a great job uh, in producing a, a podcast is, that's well-received. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other benefits, and I, I'll say benefit, um, is that we get the opportunity to sit in various different meetings with our service counterparts. So one of the ones that uh, we sit in with is with the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And when the podcast first broke, um, we made that an opportunity for us to pitch the Air Force counterparts. That generated some conversation and some interest too. So I think what you're doing here is important because you're helping share wealth of knowledge, much like what we do at the tactical level. Uh, but I think the your listenership will greatly benefit from uh, podcasts that you produce. I listen to them frequently, and I get a kick out of the subject. And some of them are really, really very well done. Thanks, sir. We couldn't do it without having guests come on and, and give us insight into what's going on in the doctrine world because it's a lot bigger than you, you realize. You know, I mean, just the Army side even looking, you know, you've got your centers and schools that produce their doctrine and then all the way up here at, at CAD doing operational doctrine. So, and then it's, it's, it's a, a lot to learn. So I think we, we try to beat the drum about it. Yeah, you learn something. I mean, the longer you, you do this stuff, the more you realize you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that in itself is, is humbling, but it's also kind of exciting, and it, it, it kind of could fire our passion if that intellectual side of our profession is something that you find uh, compelling to contribute to. I mean, you, you can make an enduring difference. And I would just offer to both of you gentlemen that uh, we kept this very broad. We just talked about also as an organization, we talked about a few things, but in the future, if there's a particular publication or a family you know, subset of publications that you think is important enough to do a standalone podcast, We'd love to have you back. Well, Great. likewise, if you, if you identify something that you'd like to pursue, let us know. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank and you. It'd be great to bring one of the action officers to be able to talk about oh, yeah, their roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, gentlemen. Thank, thank you for having us. I'd also like to thank our listeners and note that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the United States Army Training and Doctrine Command, the Combined Arms Center, or the Air Land Sea Application Center. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this is Breaking Doctrine.